Hello, hello, and welcome to the 21 Soul Music Podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, and on this show, I'll be sharing some intimate interviews with musicians from around the world. In my role at Ropadope Records, I interview each artist as they prepare for their next release. I want to get some backstory. I want to understand what led them to this point, to this record. Tonight on the show, Mr. Mike Clark, the legendary Mike Clark, and a quick trip to his Wikipedia page will list him as a jazz musician, and yet in the first paragraph, they point out that he's a legendary funk drummer. We know Mike from Herbie Hancock's band back in the 70s, and of course the Headhunters subsequently, but Mike has played with so many of the greats, we can't list them here. In 2018, Mike Clark, at the age of 70, is still going strong in what he calls the sport of jazz, basically dialogue and communication with other jazz musicians as an ongoing process. There are four records coming out on rope this year with Mr. Mike Clark on the drums. First is the band Metal Blue. The second is Mike's record with Delbert Bump, uh, an organ and drums record, if you will. Third is the band Venture, Mike Clark, Mark Sherman, Felix Pastorius, and Chase Baird in a no-holds-barred jazz extravaganza. And then finally in the fall, we will have Mike on drums with his friend Tony Odama, the pep cat spoken word artist, harkens back to the, the great jazz days. So without further ado, Mr. Mike Clark in his own words. So I've been uh, uh, digging through uh, some history. Um, it's pretty extensive. <laughs> um, I think the first question I want to ask you, we'll start here and work backwards, is you have a lifetime of credits uh, and a lifetime of music. And when I talk to you on the phone, uh, if I didn't know, I would guess you were probably somewhere in between, I don't know, 25 and 35 or something like that, based on your energy level and your excitement <laughs> about music. So I want to know how, how this is all so fresh and exciting to you uh, after how many years? Oh, geez. Well, you figure <clears throat> I started uh... – uh, in the early 50s as a child, and uh, I started playing professionally as a grade school uh, student as well. My father was a drummer, so he took me uh, where all of his friends were playing, and uh, um, I played at a very high level for a guy eight or nine years old. So <clears throat> rather than spend my life in a practice room, I spent most of it on the, on the stage or on the bandstand playing with the cats. You know what I mean? So that's kind of um uh, uh what my background is uh is a lot of uh, a lot of live gigs a lot of live playing with with uh with live musicians <laughs> so yeah it wasn't like i played the tracks or anything like that i uh my thing went down right on the bandstand and and um you know as far as my uh energy level and excitement for playing, I guess it's, I don't feel any different now than I did then as far as, you know, I still feel, uh, I still feel great. And, um, I think the music makes me really high. You know what I mean? Spiritually really high. <laughs> there it is. There it is. That's it. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do something for, uh, that long, then, uh, 
music is pretty high on the list uh, to, to keep you to keep you cooking. All right. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> cool. So um, let's go back to that. So you, your dad was a drummer, um, jazz drummer, or what? Uh, what style? Yeah, he was a jazz drummer. There weren't many options in those days, like uh, Elvis Presley, Fats Domino. Little Richard hadn't hit yet, so uh, everything was kind of big, big band. And he also played Dixieland jazz. He was uh, uh, not a uh, not a bebopper. I'm I di I'm the one that introduced uh, him to bebop. <laughs> yeah, and he he quit playing when he was quite young. But there was always uh, jazz records. Uh, mostly uh, Dixieland and Bebop. Uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, Dixieland and Big Band. And also he was a blues aficionado. So we had a really great uh, blues selection. And this is before B.B. King started recording and became popular or any of that. This was like Winoni Harris and um, uh, Louis Jordan and uh, Will Bradley. Anyway, so, you know, the, even before I could walk, I was hearing all this, you know. <clears throat> and that's in uh, Northern California, in, in uh, Sacramento. Is that right? That's in Sacramento, yeah. And but when we when I turned seven, he was a railroad man, uh, and uh, he got a gig at the railroad. And then I uh, we started traveling, so we moved to Pittsburgh, um, and then later we moved to. Atlanta and then to Virginia and then to Texas. So all this time I'm playing, he's going to bars and nightclubs and meeting local musicians and saying, Hey, you ought to check out my son. They're like, bring him by. I'd come by and I was kind of a novelty act. I'd come in and play two or three tunes and a long solo and, uh, or, or a drum solo. I don't know how long it was. <laughs> and, uh, but I'd get paid. So I was kind of a child, uh, drummer, you know, um, and uh, the good news about that is, so the guys that I was playing with, who I'd ever I'd end up playing with, would uh, give me a lot of tips about how to, what to do while you're playing behind somebody, rather than just play drums as technical and as fast as you can. These guys were into, they'd tell you how to swing and how to play the shuffle and how to play the blues, and how to get funky, all kinds of stuff, you know. <laughs> And those are some interesting cities to get that breadth of knowledge, aren't aren't they? All right, so oh yeah, especially at that time period. And 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 uh, now, so now by the time period I'm dressing addressing now, I'm more like ten or eleven. So Little Richard and all of the Fats Domino, Lloyd Price, and all these people are now starting to uh, come to the forefront in America. You know, uh, so um, I'm hearing all this and. Uh, uh, learning how to play this too as it's uh because uh, this was the music of my youth you know what i mean so i had my um jazz collection and now i'm listening to this stuff rhythm and blues um so, also i had just found art blakey mm. at about nine nine or ten years old and uh once i found art blakey I got a record. My father brought home a record by Art Blakey. I didn't know who he was, and it knocked me out. So we started buying uh, bebop and uh, and modern, more modern Dizzy Gillespie. And so through Art Blakey, I found Charlie Parker and all the others. You know, <clears throat> there it is. There it is. Uh, you, you mentioned Texas. Um, was it Dallas or H Houston? 
It, well, it was both. It was uh, actually, uh, it started in Dallas. We lived there for about a year. And then um, we moved to uh, Fort Worth. And I stayed there for a couple of years. And then I went to Houston uh, on my own for about six or eight months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I went back to Fort Worth. So Texas was revisited a couple of times. And that's where I met Delbert McClinton. And I played in his band while I was there for a while. And I met a bunch of other guys in Fort Worth, too. So I got into the, the Texas blues scene. And that led me to the Texas jazz scene. Beautiful. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion. It keeps coming up in in, in these interviews that I do about the uh, the difference in feeling that comes uh when you get down into houston dallas up to kansas city and omaha and there just seems to be a a more blues infused feeling to everyone's style and approach uh than new orleans new york you know do you agree i'll say you know what i mean like well texas at that time was really popping uh had a really popping blues scene so yes and they had a certain they made certain demands there was a certain way of playing uh that style it was a hot-blooded style it wasn't real relaxed and laid back like let's say chicago type blues stuff you know what i mean and uh it had a real snap to it uh, i guess because it gets real hot there in the summer i don't know why but uh but uh, you know you had to really crack snap and pop you know what I mean? That was the deal. And uh, those shuffles had to be a certain way. And uh, um, you had to tune your snare drum really tight, unlike unlike a lot of jazz drummers at that time who tuned their drums loose, you know, uh, at least the snare drum. But you were required to have that sharp crack. It's interesting. I, I suspect, and I'm going to continue to dig, but I, I think I think there's some cultural level of dip, you know, there's there's a deeper root that leads to that to to Houston and uh, you know, or than than New Orleans, like a, some kind of different thing uh, from the tribally or somewhere. We're, we're gonna we're gonna keep digging on that one <laughs> um, and go back. Well, New Orleans is a whole other culture unto itself. You know what I mean? Because you have the you know, uh, Congo Square is pretty much where it all got started. And then you have the Indians there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, for the, you know, uh, the uh, Mardi Gras uh, mm-hmm. Indians and, uh, and uh, a lot of the funk. And I suspect a lot of the, the uh, traditional jazz. Um, in fact, I'm, uh, is really heavily influenced by, by that you know, uh, by the parade thing. In fact, I know it is. I don't think it is. I know it is. Donald Harrison is a really close friend of mine. And, uh, um, he taught, he's, you know, he's, he's from New Orleans. He's a, a big chief um, of his own tribe, the Congo Nation. And uh, he tells me a whole lot of stuff about this. And uh, yeah, that's very different. Texas, I'm not sure what that's all about. It's <laughs> Right, right. I have no idea how they came to the conclusions they did, but um, uh, I like the funk and blues in Texas, especially from the early 60s time period. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I got a chance to meet Donald at the uh, Eddie Palmieri show. And of course his nephew, uh, Christian is, is a friend and, and we're always talking about this, this kind of heritage, but it is interesting to see that, that difference. And, um, it's interesting to hear that it influenced you, but then, you know, sometimes when I, you obviously, and, and I'd have to go back and listen to some of your earlier stuff, but maybe it's just, this is just this superb uh, uh, refinement of an older, uh, an elder statesman that you are, but there's also a touch that you have that is very refined and, and isn't that Dallas thing. So where do you think that, where, where does that develop in your plan? Well, when I, um, uh, that's a great question, by the way, Lewis. Thank you. I, it's going to be fun to answer <laughs> and challenging. I would say uh, that when I uh, discovered Max Roach, his snare, his drumming was cleaner than, uh, let's say, Art Blakey or some of the other guys that I was listening to at that point. And so it required uh learning some drum uh technique uh, learning how to hit how to strike and how to play your roles very open and clean and uh it seemed like for a while there in my development not so much anymore everything had to be accounted for so i wanted all of it to be heard every bit of it so i made sure uh, that I could, I was kind of always naturally bluesy and funky, so I didn't have to put any more dirt on it than it was there. So I've already got that. And then I, uh, but I tried to clean the rolls up. Oh, and the other thing is <clears throat> from playing in Texas, uh, let me add that. It started with Max, but then in Texas, everybody played very clean. I'm not saying it wasn't raw and dirty and, and you could be sloppy while playing clean in other words instead of making uh your licks rolls or fills whatever you want to call them come off perfectly you could you could have them sound jagged and 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 kind of uh not perfect but but all of that would come through because the drums were tuned so clean and then after a while i just uh i stayed like that and uh I don't know what it is now. I'm just sort of playing naturally now. You know what I mean? And so I don't concentrate on any of that stuff. But I think, uh, <clears throat> oh, then I did a lot of rhythm and blues shows for a while. So, you know, uh, uh, some of James Brown's drummers, this is when I was quite young, uh, a guy from Tina Turner's band, Ike and Tina, the old uh, band with uh, way before the Proud Mary thing and all that. Uh, they taught me how to tune my snare so that it would cut through in a big auditorium because we didn't have monitors and the drums weren't mic'd up like they are now. So you had to cut through on your own without all of the help of the sound system. And in order to do that, you had to learn how to tune your drums so that it would rip through when you weren't killing yourself uh, trying to get your sound across. So I guess all of that thrown into a pot somehow, if you stir it all up, that's kind of what happened to me and then of course when you're playing jazz you can't play full volume all the time so you're required to learn you have to be able to play at a whisper and still get all your things across the plate so i think all of those things make up the answer to that question <laughs> my answer to that question uh, perfect perfect when was the first time that you worked uh using a, a, a monitor on stage 
you know, uh, I, I, probably in the 90s sometime, it came to my attention to, well, I remember when the upright basses didn't even have an amp, you know? Oh. And, um, yeah, so a lot of the times, uh, uh, yeah, and Elvin with Coltrane, and all they, I don't think uh, Jimmy Garrison had an amp at that point. But uh, they, they would mic up the bass and it, run it through the house, but it was... Uh, it seemed uh, after the electric bass became popular uh, in the 60s and uh, a lot of guys, it was easier to fly. It was less expensive. Whatever the excuse was, there seemed to be a lot of electric bass. That's when uh, you had to play harder because it's electric. And, you know, I'm over there with cowhide and all they have to do is turn a knob. And on. So if the volume escalates like it did in the 60s, well, then you know, you had to have an answer before. Well, pretty soon it became so incredibly loud that uh, I think I was in the Headhunters uh, in the 70s, and one day there was a box on the state on the drum riser, mm -hmm. and it was, and uh, they were like, "Well, what do you want in your monitor?" And I'm like, "Huh? What do I want in my monitor? What does that even mean? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like a." Uh, uh, so that's how it's, I think it's somewhere in the seventies, I noticed there was a, a loud noise coming from a box that was sitting next to my hi-hat and pretty soon I learned how to deal with it. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I think a lot of people take it for granted. Uh, you know, we look at the, uh, at the setup and we don't understand that the technology developed as late as it did. People just kind of assume that, well, you always had monitors and, uh but it it's it's not until the 70s really late 60s right i remember i used to go hear ray charles or you know uh, um any big band but i'm just singling out ray charles because i can see myself sitting in the in the auditorium and there was only one mic um, there was one mic where the, there was two mics, one mic where the horns would come up when they'd solo, they'd walk up to the microphone and solo. And the other one was for him to talk and see, sing, I'm sorry, <laughs> talk and sing. Um, and, um, um, no monitors, no nothing. That was it. So you just played regular, uh, you played normally and, and, uh, you learned you you learn to adjust to mix the sound in your brain so that your sound was in the center of everything. And uh, at first, you know, you play the first tune, you, you can't hear everybody sometimes if it's a big stage. But you can actually mix it yourself by being patient. It's almost like a meditation. If you sink down into the music and just let yourself relax, pretty soon you'll hear everything you need and your place in it. It becomes a it becomes a chop, a technique, uh, an understanding. Fascinating. So I want to I want to dig in here, um, and you you may decline to even cover this part of it or tell me that it's not that important. But I found something new uh, for me here uh, in your in your bio uh, or your Wikipedia page, uh, Brand X. So oh oh, I love those guys. Yeah, well. Know. A lot about music, but I, I, I listen to a lot, and and for some reason, Brand X has completely missed my radar, and it's a fascinating story, so I'd like to hear your your thoughts. Well, uh, I was in the Headhunters with Herbie, and that was all uh, funk, 
and I pretty much had the cuffs on. Uh, they didn't really want me to uh, improvise very much in that band. Um, uh, so it was fun. But after a while, it got kind of boring because I'm playing time back there. And after uh, I was young and I wanted to show everybody what I had, what arsenal I had, because all the other drummers in those fusion bands were. But this was more of a uh, Herbie's was more of a funk band. So it was about some pocket. Well, well, Brand X called me uh, based on uh, a track called Actual Proof that I'd done on Thrust. They really liked it. And Phil Collins was the drummer in Brand X, but he was getting, his career was blowing up with Genesis at that point, and he couldn't do this, so they needed a guy to come in and play. And they called me, and I did it. And uh, they flew me to England and got me a great crib right on King's Road. It was ridiculous. And we went to Ringo Starr's house where he had a recording studio called Startling Studio. And this is the house that used to belong to John and Yoko. In fact, the piano that was in that video, Imagine, was still in the in the front room when I got there. Wow. And... Uh, um, and you could see some of John and Yoko's things and some of the Beatles. There was a little couple of guitar cases, this, that, the other few things left around there in the storage room that you had to pass to get into the studio, which was in the basement. Anyway, and we recorded this record. And for me, uh, it was really art rock. I wouldn't even call it fusion. It was very modern. It was, it was like a painting. And they said to me, you can paint anything you want on here. So I had gone from having the cuffs on and playing Total Pocket to doing whatever I felt like doing. And um, so I had never played any real fusion music. I wouldn't consider the Headhunters a fusion band. And this lent itself more in that department. I was dry, dying to try out some of my ideas that would fit that particular genre. And so I did. And... Uh, we toured for about a year and we made two records, one called do they hurt and the other called product. And, um, I thoroughly enjoyed, it was such a change from Herbie and the headhunters that it was like a different part of my life that I got to address. And I loved it. I really loved it. It was wonderful. You know, I knew it wasn't going to last forever because yeah, you got Phil Collins there waiting to come back in whenever he's, uh, you know, I was like the part-time guy, but right. I had a blast. <laughs> right, right. Beautiful. I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm going to revisit those uh, or visit those for the first time. I'm, I'm not sure how it, how it skipped my attention, but that's an incredible story. Um, let's jump forward to, uh, to now and talk about um, this record uh, with Delbert. Um, now, how, how do you two uh, know each other? How did you connect? At one point, I lived in a town called Chico, California. And there was a bunch of small towns in Northern California, uh, five or six small towns that were very close together. And there was a huge community of high school musicians that were all working and making money. And they were quite good. So Delbert was in a band from Oroville, uh, California and I was in a band from Chico and we would play opposite each other all the time and every once in a while we'd play together so I've known him since high school 
and um, we were both uh, uh, busy with our band. Uh, uh, we were working four nights, three and four nights a week, so it was great, and we were learning music, and each band would try to outdo the other band by learning new, more sophisticated stuff. Uh, um, it was wonderful. And so I've known him for ever. Then um, later in the 70s, I was uh, in San Francisco and I had a solid working career going on there. We were, we were playing bebop and post-bop jazz music like five nights a week for year after year after year. I, I thought it would never end. I mean, I never even considered uh, the kind of economy we're in now where there's not working jazz clubs all over the place. There used to be. Right. Um, and Delbert uh, came through the Bay Area and um, and sat in and played on some gig that I was on. And then we've been playing. So we immediately hooked up and started working and writing and doing different <clears throat> things um, together you know, coming up with new concepts and new ideas. And so then uh, I went on the road with Herbie and I moved to New York shortly after. And I lost touch with Delbert for quite a few years. And then I was out in California uh, doing a short tour with somebody. I can't remember who. And Delbert uh, called me and uh, we started playing together again. And since then, we've been playing together off and on, you know, since the 70s. And so. Uh, I was going to uh, be in California, and he said, let's do some recording. And I went, okay. So we recorded the things that we're going to put out on Rope-A-Dope. Uh, um, we made this album uh, without the intention of making an album. That's probably why it sounds uh, innocent and fresh, because it wasn't like, let's make a record. It's like, let's just go in there and play some stuff that we dig. And that's what we did. And then when I heard it back and listened to it, I went, man, this stuff sounds so good that I'm going to start reaching out to some companies, you know, it was more like a jam. <laughs> it feels you know? really relaxed. It feels, it feels, it feels like polished and relaxed, you know? Um, yes, yeah, it was. I mean, we were trying to play really good, but at the same time, it, we didn't have a goal, uh, which is sometimes really cool <laughs> because you're not married to anything. You're just going to play, you know, and, uh, and that's what we did. And uh, he brought in this young man, Elias Lusaro, who was 19 at the time. And he's an amazing guitar player. And even more amazing, the fact that he's got technique and he can do this and he can do that, was the fact that he played like a guy who'd been on the road for 40 years. I was like, how do you get that way at 19? And, uh, and he's a he's college uh, uh, graduate uh, of music. Uh, graduate so he can read and write and compose and uh, uh, most of the what you heard are first takes almost everything's a first take so uh, I said well I said man this guy is great he's great I met his father and his father I said well how come he can play like this uh, level of maturity and his dad said well he's been I had him on the his dad's a guitar player Gotcha. And were and worked for a lifetime, and, and he said, "Well, I've had him on the stage since he was a little baby, so he's been there the whole time." <laughs> so and, and, this guy was, was he was he uh, was he intimidated at all when he got in with you guys? Because I mean, not a, he was so normal. He was more normal than I am at recording. It looked like he just looked looked like a guy he, he like a guy in his front room with his slippers on. I'm not just making this up. He was not. 
intimidated at all. In fact, he couldn't wait for the next tune. He's a young guy full of energy. You know, he was like, let's get this thing on. And he had a great sense of humor and he just seemed to be able to uh, do the right thing at the right time all, all day. So it was a joyful record. I think we made the whole record in six or seven hours. You know, it wasn't like a three day project that we labor labored over. We just were knocking them out. So right, so so you you finish this, um, and then you play it back, and everybody, like, were there, were there points where you said, uh, you know, I wanted I would have done that differently, or it just felt it just felt natural when you played it back. No, it felt natural. Now I can, as far as drums go, I can play drums at a higher level as far as uh, uh, technically and or breaking new ground or conceptionally. But this was a um, a blowing date that was serious, but at the same time, it was fun. We just wanted to enjoy each other and have a nice afternoon of just playing the blues, playing some jazz, playing some funk, playing some shuffles, and let's have a good time. Now, when I went in to listen to it, uh, I listened to it and I liked it, and then uh I, I came back to New York, and uh, the guy at the studio, Barry, he sent me the roughs. And I listened to him and I called Dilbert and I said, yo, we got something here, bro. This is really, this is really fun to listen to and it makes you feel good, you know? And so, um, he said, yeah, I've been listening to it too. And I said, well, then I'm going to reach out to, so what I did is I, um, uh, I, I, um, before I got a hold of Ropa Dope, I, right before that, I had, uh, an old friend of mine, Vince Denham, who played with, uh, Everybody in the Bay Area, jazz and rhythm and blues, all of this type. He played everything. Um, he played with Loggins and Messina for years and years. And, you know, made a great living in Los Angeles playing saxophone. I called Vince. And he's on a track called More Chicken. And uh, and I and uh, he brought some wonderful, he wrote an arrangement over the top of the um, skeleton framework that we had. And he put on some horns. And uh, and then Rob Dixon, um, a great tenor player who's played with the Headhunters and has his own records out. He's a, a part of the in Indianapolis, uh, the Indiana Indianapolis Jazz Festival. Um, he's there all the time, and uh, he's a mainstay uh, tenor player and an important figure in the Indianapolis uh, jazz scene. And I called Rob and I said, hey, man, I played this old tune that Delbert and I used to play in high school called Honky Tonk, which, by the way, I had played in Harlem for three years with uh, Bill Doggett, the guy that wrote and recorded the original Honky Tonk, right? And so we were goofing around in the studio. Uh, and Delbert started playing Honky Tonk and we just all kind of chimed in. And it swung so hard afterwards. I said, well, let's, let's save it. We were only kind of... Uh, it wasn't planned. We just like, he started playing the bass line and I started playing the shuffle. And what you hear is what we did, <laughs> you know? So, um, is there anything, that's it. Is there any, it sounds, it's great. And I, and I think that feeling comes through and I'm, I'm I can't wait for people to enjoy. It's, it's sort of, it feels like when you listen to this, you're, you're going to be, in that same vibe and space as you guys were when you recorded it, you know? That's, ex that's exactly, everybody says that, by the way. That's a great analogy because so I was in the studio the other day 
uh, doing something and I played that track and the, and the engineer there said, God, I felt like I was in there with you guys. And I'm like, well, that's a good sign. And I'm glad you said that because uh, that's a good sign that you feel that way. That's what it does to people. And that's great because, uh, uh, and we tried to, you know, the name of the record is, the uh, uh, CD is uh, Retro Report. So we tried to take some old things and then we also did some very modern, uh, if you want to call it cutting edge uh, stuff as well on this date on what retro report. So we, we, we took some old things that we like, and especially since uh, it's an organ record, we took some traditional organ stuff and kind of gave it a different uh, face. Uh, but then we did, uh, we took some Bill Evans tunes and a miles tune and, uh, and this and that. And, uh, um, so we have some real jagged, crazy, modern sounding stuff. And then we have some stuff that uh, harkens back to the time to get your four speed shift on and bucket seats or whatever, you know, what I mean, get, yep. get back to the four and the floor, you know, like 67 Mustang. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> or 68 Camaro. I'm right there. Oh yeah, man. I got that, man. I, I had some great cars during that time period. All of them, they didn't even call them muscle cars then, but mine were. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, well, this is awesome. Uh, are there, is, is there any other uh, particular track or, you know, or, uh, cut on this record that you wanted to comment on, um, I, you know, that stands out to you? Uh, um, yeah, there's one... Uh, track uh there's a track by miles davis he wrote it anyway it's called there's a tune it's a tune called no more blues and i just think it swings real hard i i that's what's special about it just the feeling you know uh i think high heel sneakers is another one because we took the jimmy smith prototype uh, of it i mean it was recorded way before jimmy smith but jimmy put a certain thing on it and we kind of used that as a jumping off place. And then I put a modern kind of Oakland funk beat to it. So we changed it a little bit. But I think it really is a straight up funk, like get down tune. It's just going to, people are going to, you know, you could dance to it or you could sit in there and listen to it or have a beer to it or whatever you do or whatever makes you feel good. Uh, it's one of those. So there's a party aspect to some of this. And then there's another tune called Deep in the Inner City which is, I would feel, an innovative look at the future. It has nothing to do with high heel sneakers or any of the rhythm and blues stuff. This is a completely different animal. <clears throat> and this sounds more like something uh, you might have heard Larry Young do at one point, uh, uh, a great organ player, except it's now, so we, we kind of updated everything a little bit um so I, those tracks stand out uh, to me and there's we took an uh well you needn't an old polonius monk tune and um and uh, brightened the groove up on it uh, uh, so there's a, a some nice interplay going on between the musicians there and uh so i think you have a lot of different things here you got the funk um, uh, um it's an organ record so all of the tracks have some soul and funk on it some kind of way but we are playing jazz as well so you have that 
So there's an intellectual aspect for you to listen to, because uh, which is the dialogue between the musicians. And I tried to mix it so that everything is audible, and you can you don't have to listen hard to hear anything. It's all right there. You can just sit back and listen to it. You don't have to lean forward and put your head in the speakers. And um, uh, uh, we played a beautiful ballad um, um, and um, some hardcore shuffles. So I, I think as far as jazz, funk, blues, and rhythm and blues goes, I think you'll find all of those things somehow on this CD recording or whatever you want to call it. Um, and and maybe one leaks into another here and the other sort of leaks into the other there. So that's it. You know, you know it, it'll keep you on your toes. It's not... It's funky and it's soulful and it's in the gut, but at the same time, it's not totally uncomplicated. Understood. Understood. Wow, and beautifully said, Mike Clark. Thank you so much. I want to I want to thank you personally um, for just being involved with with the Ropado project here uh, and and trusting us with with uh, with your great work. And um, I'm really looking forward to more to come. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having people uh, be able to hear this record. So thank you. Well, listen, it's my honor and privilege always to make uh, music for people. And uh, I'm also really anxious to see the reaction to this, to this uh, music when we get it out. It's coming out. Is it April 5th? Is that when it's due out? Uh, (laughs) April something anyway, but uh, in April. Uh, no, I'll get it for you. I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, okay. Uh, April 6th, but it'll be April 6th. Good. On March 9th. So people, people start hearing it in, uh, early to mid March, some pieces of it. And then we'll go from there. Great. Well, listen, I also want to thank you and all of the creative artists on your staff and, and crew at Ropadope. Everybody's stepping up. I think you guys now, are bringing something new to the party as well. I've been watching what you're doing and how you're going about doing it. And it's as creative as is the the musicians who are making music for the label. And uh, because I think you guys are looking at the whole process completely different than any company I've dealt with. I've dealt with a few. (laughs) So that's my, I just want to put that in there from uh, a heartfelt thank you. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. That's that's certainly that's what we're trying to do. Do it do it different and keep it open. Yeah. All right. All right, brother. Thank you. Great interview. Great great questions. And I enjoy I enjoyed that immensely. Appreciate you, Mike. Have a good one. Thanks again. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Twenty One Soul Music Podcast. If you like what we do, please subscribe. You can find us on Mixcloud. And you can go over to YouTube and find our video series as well. We're also available on Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else podcasts are found. A big shout out to our producer, Mr. Nick Perry. Our show is recorded in East Philadelphia at the Ropadope Room. I want to say thank you to musicians who contribute music to the world and to this podcast. And a big thank you to those of you who have taken the time to listen. We hope you enjoy the show.